Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all quarantiners. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. This week, we're bringing you preaching tips on Deuteronomy 34, 1-12, the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is the first reading scheduled for the lectionary on October 25th, 2020. Here to walk us through this text is a special guest exegete. That's right. We are so excited to have with us today Dr. Denise Flanders. Dr. Flanders is an assistant professor of biblical studies at Taylor University in Indiana. She is working on the 1st and 2nd Samuel volume for the commentary series, The Bible in God's World. Denise is passionate about introducing students to the ethical and spiritual relevance of the Hebrew Bible to faith and life today, which makes her perfect for this podcast. To find more of her work, dear listeners, we would recommend checking out her website, deniseflanders.com. Denise Flanders, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's so good to talk to you. Now, just right off the bat, we've been asking all of our guests this because we're in the middle of pandemic mode here. So um, tell us what sorts of things have been getting you through this era? Yeah, so... Um, we put in a swimming pool during the pandemic. Like we are, we are one of those families that was like, we're stuck at home. We have four children. What are we going to do? Let's do something crazy and spontaneous. So our kids are loving it. They were like, you guys were serious. (laughs) We were talking about it. We were talking about the next day of bulldozers here. They were like, wow, you, you were for real on this. So. I feel like it was either put in a swimming pool or get a dog. Like that was kind of the quarantine. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we don't regret this and wish we had just gotten a dog. um, (laughs) (laughs) No, it's been good so far. Very fun, life-giving for us being stuck at home. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, why don't we start our conversation in the passage as we normally do for these episodes with reading the first reading. So Denise, Great. would you be willing to read that for us in English? This is Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him And the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and and his entire land. 
and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Deuteronomy knows how to end a book. I was just looking at the at the front of the passage there, and I just had to pull up like a map on my computer right. here. Um, can we try to together sort of get a handle on the geography here? So it says that um, Moses was at Mount Nebo. Um, maybe um, we can get a sense of sort of the the literary context here of where we are in the Torah and in Deuteronomy, and then the geographical context where are we in the world right i mean so we're we're right like you said this end of book we're right here at the end of the torah right and moses's death was i guess predicted back in deuteronomy 31 so that um you know, some scholars are like, this is the longest death complex <laughs> uh, that we have in the Old Testament, you know, the prediction and then his song and everything. And then here he is a bit um, on the plains of Moab. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as geographically, right, they're they're not entered into the land of Canaan, the promised land, right? They're um, on the other side, right, opposite Jericho. And so he's described as being on Mount Nebo. I don't know. I mean, I sort of did like you did and looked on a map to get a sense of this. But um, we know they're on the eastern side of the Jordan and he's he's looking in. And um, I don't know that you actually I don't think that you actually can see this whole distance from where he is. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, there would be sort of mountains blocking some of this so that I don't think he could really see all of this so some people think maybe god gave him a vision or something but um when it's interesting too that it's moab in particular you know moab has there's such an interesting complex relationship between israel and the moabites um in the old testament so it's interesting that it's here from this vantage point that he's looking out yeah it's really interesting when you think about how like moses's first conversation with God is also outside the land, right? Like when, when he, you know, escapes from Egypt into Midian and then God meets him in the desert, in the wilderness and Midian outside the land. And then he has, you know, a full life of converse, conversing with God and, and knowing God and being his prophet. And then his life ends here also, you know, outside the land in Moab, like you said, on mountaintops in both places too. You know, it's almost like they're they're doing the the very just come full circle kind of move here. Yeah, right. Like God meets him and speaks to him. Yeah, right outside the land. And I was I was I'm thinking I'm meditating on this you know this week thinking about this passage and thinking too even how when God meets him, this is right after he's killed someone. I mean, not not right after, but in, as far as the text goes, right? He's killed mm-hmm. someone. Um, my students are always so struck by that because the Prince of Egypt makes it, the, the, the killing looks like an accident, right? <laughs> so they're like in the Bible, it just says he killed someone, right? He did it on purpose. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, he, he's killed someone, you know, and then, you know, gone to another land. And then here he's, he's still in another land, you know, outside of, outside of the land that will become the land of Israel. Um, and, and there's this mention of, you know, he's not allowed to go in, which is sort of also referring you back to an incident where, um, you know, he's acted questionably, I guess, you know, so 
I just saw the mirroring, yeah, in a couple of different ways, you know, sort of, of course, it's exalting him. He's, you know, there's no prophet like him. But at the same time, that comment that, you know, you're, he's not going in because of what happened brings that to mind, too. So it's like, from beginning to end, he's been someone who is not a perfect human and has done wrong things. And from beginning to end, God has been speaking with him and face to face, even, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, just a neat picture. Yeah, that that raises for me the question that's been rattling around in my mind with regard to the kind of the whole text here, whether this showing Moses the promised land is like a good thing from God, like a gift, like a, a consolation prize, sort of, or whether it's um, sort of yeah. like, see what you could have had if you had, if you'd only really listened to me type of thing. And I'm not sure uh, quite which way to take it. What do you guys think? Moses is seeing this. If you go sort of more positively, you know, like you said, could do you look at it positively or negatively? If you look at it positively, it's like he's seeing this thing that God's showing him and yet at the same time, it can never be. So it's sort of, I, I don't know, in that way, kind of a neat, you know, beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I've also thought about it the other way, like not exactly what you said, Tim, but more of like a severe mercy that he's not going in because he like the Lord has already told him they're going to go in and then they're going to start worshiping other gods. Like, is it a mercy that Moses, like instead of a punishment, is it a mercy that he doesn't go in? And have to be there to witness them turning away once again, you know, the future Israelites to worshiping other gods. And I mean, God has told him that's what's going to happen. So, you know, mm-hmm. is it merciful, I guess, that he gets to pass this off to Joshua to do <laughs> and it gets to just be done, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. I, I love the phrase you use there, severe mercy. That's such a, that's such a great phrase because it's like juxtaposing two things you normally think of as opposites, but, you know, it probably was severe to look at that land and think about kind of what could have been, but yeah, the mercy of, and now it's no longer your, your, your burden to carry the people as Moses himself described it. So that's neat. Yeah. And that's not my phrase, by the way, that's the title of a book. So oh, really? um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's, it, I forget the name of the author, but it includes some letters from C.S. Lewis. It's a friend of his that wrote the book, but um <laughs> He's in the book, he's describing the severe mercy of death within a marriage because, you know, a marriage could end in divorce or death. And so he describes death in that case as a severe mercy. It made me think of this, you know, to like Moses's deaths sort of being similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of bring, that just this conversation brings out the momentous nature of this moment in the story it, it takes me back to my my time as uh, uh an intern in a hospital setting where you're with people who are dying and there's that sense of this is a special moment um even though it's a there's always a sense of tragedy and death and yet for some people at least um it's there is a sense of mercy in it too where especially if they've been suffering for a while or that kind of thing or there's just a lot of burdens that they're carrying. This is the moment when they get to release that and be at peace. Yeah. And you get a sense of that with, with Moses here as well, that he's he's carried a big burden for an extraordinarily long time yeah. by the biblical reckoning. And uh, now it's time for him to pass, to let go of that burden and pass it along. Yeah. Let's take a few minutes and look at a few of the details in the text here and just sort of uh, see what we make of some of them. 
Um, I'm, I'm kind of going back to the early part of the text again, just to note that what God shows Moses, and we mentioned this briefly, is not just, um, here's a you know picturesque view of the other side of the river, but there's this sort of um, litany of, of sights. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what we make of um, what it is that God shows Moses and what significance that has for the narrative itself of kind of listing by name all of these different places. It's interesting, too, that, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh are the, the sons of Joseph, and then you have Judah. So it's like the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are both included in there. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. Do you have other thoughts? I mean, Tim? besides just noticing that the the names that are given here are the names that are associated with these places after the settlement. Yeah, right. They don't exist yet. <laughs> so he didn't look over and show him the land, uh, you know, the region of the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites, mm-hmm. but it was Dan and Ephraim and Naphtali and Judah. Uh, and it kind of sweeps along from north to south for the most part, right? Um all the way, like for the furthest extent of what would yeah. at some point in the narrative be known as the the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. So there's there's something to it about the perspective of the text of mm-hmm. looking forward to a time when there's this sort of idealized completion of the promise being fulfilled of this being the land of the unified and expansive people of Israel. The, the one thing I noticed about it is that it doesn't say like from Dan to Beersheba, mm-hmm. right? Like that's sort mm-hmm. of the normal expression, which I then just take to mean, you know, the whole land. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder by not using that expression, I don't know if that means anything or not, but like by naming off these places, yeah, I thought about that that Dan de Beersheba thing too. Dan de Beersheba is kind of a specifically geographic type thing, and and here you have the sort of eponymous ancestor, mm. you know, the names of the tribes. Yeah, so right. there's more of a sense of people than of uh, geography. And I wonder if it has something to do. This might be a little bit of a logical leap, but with that little notice about the burial place of Moses and nobody knowing to this day where it is. And again, that's sort of that perspective. You can kind of hear the perspective of the narrator kind of from the land saying, you know, uh, this is, this is the land that's associated with our, our tribal ancestors and Moses is over there buried, but nobody knows where that is. So you sort of get a sense of, of this being a story that's, we're there in the moment, but we're hearing about it told told from somebody who's removed mm-hmm. from it by some some distance of, of time and space. Yeah, and don't go looking for the burial site because yeah. yeah. we don't. <laughs> <laughs> nobody knows. I got that sense of it too. Like, just don't try, friends. <laughs> don't try, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about that that direction you tipped us towards, Tim. That these are not the lands of other peoples, but these are the lands of our peoples, even though there happen to be other peoples Hmm. living there. Um, Hmm. You know, the Exodus is one of the great texts of especially liberation theology, you know, because it relates so much to freedom from oppression. Uh, But some, especially uh, Native American scholars pointed out that it's the freedom from oppression in order to conquer. Hmm. So how, how do we address this 
kind of as pastors, scholars? Um, and do we address it all in a sermon? Um, what do you think? Well, if the sermon is on Joshua or Deuteronomy 7, you have to address, you have right. to address it. <laughs> uh, no avoiding it, right? Um, but it's definitely important to acknowledge, um, to it, just step one, be aware that, right, what is for liberation for one group, another group can only think of conquest and mm -hmm. only think of the way it's affected them negatively and their land being taken. Mm -hmm. Well, like, so Robert Allen Warrior, that article he has, yeah. that sort of seminal article on this, right? Like Canaanites, Cowboys and Indians. Mm -hmm. um, I have my I have my undergrad students read that. Um, mm -hmm. And so if they're not troubled by uh, this idea. I make them troubled by it because uh, <laughs> because it's there and, and that's bothers a lot of people and they're they're gonna you know get to it sometime. They should you know sort of get familiar with with the difficulty of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, especially yeah. since I mean, if this is sort of our sample text that we're reading right now, there's really no sense of that dynamic in this text. It's just sort of like taken for granted that this is the land that was promised to the ancestors that God's going to give to the next generation. And isn't that just hunky dory? <laughs> and so there's a little bit of, it's not exactly reading against the text necessarily, but it's of thinking about some of the dynamics that aren't on the surface of the text mm -hmm. that, that also play into this. And, and that causes us, and this is where it might fit into a sermon where you sort of have to um, critique your own perspective on things, right? You have to, mm -hmm. if this is our inherited perspective, maybe we need to look to some other voices that can give us some perspective on this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, even Tim, like you pointed out with the place names, like you said, um, at the time, right? We're thinking time of writing is different from time of, of the events being described, but the, the, the place names are Israelite place names, right? That mm -hmm. these people, but yet, like you said, it's not mentioning conveniently. I don't know how you would say that. It's not <laughs> mentioning the Perizzites, Jebusites, whoever is living there prior. So I don't know, but even this, I mean, this verse 12 here, I know that this is meant to be celebratory, this very last verse, when they're celebrating all that um, God did in Egypt to bring the Israelites out. But even the language, well, this is English, but the NRSV, when it's talking about the mighty deeds and terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel, well, that's part of the liberation. And at the same time, that for the Egyptians, I mean, that was, you know, terrifying. We're thinking about plague of the firstborn and all of that. So mm -hmm. it might be reading against the grain, but it's also there a little, you know, just referencing mm -hmm. that some of these uh, miraculous events were also terrifying or terrible mm -hmm. for some people. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that'd be helpful for some of our listeners who have a little bit of Hebrew still hanging out there in their back pocket. Like in that verse, the, the word is hamorah which okay. is from that root yara which means fear which, or terror yeah. like so the yeah. the the mm. this wonderful thing that god has done even the word itself has this sort of uh shade to it of of terror yeah that ah that kind of idea of ah that things can be awesome and they can be awful at the mm. same time and um it, it it brings to mind too denise what you were talking about kind of the whole Span of Moses's life has been one of ambiguity to a certain extent. You know, it it's of these momentous meetings with God face to face, but it also has real sin in it, real murder in it. Um, and 
I wonder if if our our folks as listeners could imagine a sermon kind of taking that analogously to today to how we approach people, especially great leaders. There seems to be this need to either vilify or Mm -hmm. idolize people who've done awesome or awful (laughs) things, you know, and is there a, is there a witness here that asks us to hold both intention? Yeah. I mean, for me, this is one of the main takeaways is Moses as the faithful prophet that spoke with God face to face. And yet, you know, these mentions of more like questionable moral and ethical things that he's done and that he can be you know that there can be this sort of joy in who he is and like commemorating his life and at the same time not brushing anything under the rug like I think there's something really relevant in that for us today Mm -hmm. because you think about who are our greats, you know, and each you know mm-hmm. denomination or religion has their greats, their, their mm-hmm. heroes from the past. And I think the more we like, like we can, we can celebrate them and the work that they've done and how they've contributed to where we are today. But if we tip into like idolizing them, mm-hmm. that's, that's no good for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that then we can't relate to them anymore, right? Yeah. Like we, like, because we are not perfect. And so if we're, the more we idolize and make someone like perfect, then it's like, we don't have to carry on the work or something because it's like, they're this hero from the past and we can never be like them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more we idolize, the more, like the less we can even relate. And then we can't carry the banner or whatever, you know, that mm-hmm. we're, then we're not going to, feel the the pull and the urge to continue the work because we're putting them up on this pedestal Mm -hmm. or something you Mm -hmm. know for lutherans too uh for those of our lutheran listeners this is an especially kind of um fruitful conversation to be having because uh this is the text for october 25th um reformation sunday which is a big deal in lutheran churches um but has many sermons that tend to either, you know, idolize or vilify even um, Martin Luther, the, the kind of founder of the Reformation movement. How does it make us think about the way we talk about people who've done awful, awesome things? And what's a faithful way to present those as models of faith? Too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is a really helpful direction. And I feel a sort of already uh, angling into some possible sermon ideas here. Do you have something, Rachel, that you've been thinking about? A little bit. I'm starting to feel a little bit like a broken record. That's the trouble with being in the middle of kind of a, a moment such as this, because everything is filtered through the lens of pandemic. But I just was so struck by that phrase of that book title, Severe Mercy. You know, I think when when you're going through something very difficult, as so many of us are in the middle of this pandemic, things that are typically more hopeful can feel kind of grating or kind of sugary sweet. I think a lot of us are in spaces that require kind of a severe mercy right now. And so I really, I really resonated with that, especially um, with the time that we're going through. And then just the, um, I think the other piece is the ambiguity of Moses's life. Um, This, this sermon experience is going to come real close to election day. And it's going to be real Mm -hmm. tempting for us as preachers to preach something about election, or maybe about the people who are up for election in whatever setting you're in. 
And I'm, I just wonder what lessons we might take away from the way the Bible presents Moses, the prophet of prophets, the awesome power. Um, what might we take from that um, as we think towards preaching in that particular moment in the United States? Those are the two directions that I kind of came up with. Um, Tim? Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, I can't read this passage anymore without thinking of MLK's mm-hmm. mountaintop speech, which he gave mm-hmm. in 1968, the day before he was assassinated. And, um, you know, he talked about himself being kind of like on the mountaintop and looking over into the promised land. And that sort of maybe because he had had some intelligence about what was possibly waiting for him saying, I don't know if I'll get there with you, but I'm not afraid. I've seen the promised land. And uh, mm-hmm. there was a sense in that speech of kind of passing the baton onto the, the Joshua's of his, of his generation. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I, now I read this passage kind of back through that lens mm-hmm. and see it as a, uh, a way that that Moses, much like Dr. King, had invested themselves and their life's work, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the generation that was following behind them. And that even though they themselves wouldn't get to accompany that generation into the fulfillment of all the promises, they could be satisfied with the work that they had done to lay the groundwork for that. And so that I I think probably for me, if I were going to preach this text, I would use some of Dr. King's words there and think about what that means for for us to invest in the the work that God's calling us to, even if we won't be able to participate in the fruits of it ourselves. Mm. And of course, that makes a lot of sense for the the same work that Dr. King was doing for racial justice. And here we are again at a time when it's important for us to be investing ourselves in the work of justice in our context, even if it's not something that we ourselves will benefit from, but for Mm -hmm. the sake of black and brown bodied children today, who Mm -hmm. we want to be able to grow up in a world that's different from the way it is right now. But Mm -hmm. I started thinking, gosh, the the same principle applies to climate action like that what we do now is not necessarily for our own sake, but for the sake of our kids and grandchildren, that they would be able to have a planet in which to flourish. Mm -hmm. In a church, you could talk about um, the importance of investing in youth ministry. That's not for yourself, but for the generation that's coming up. And this seems to be a text that really leans into that. Yeah, it's funny because I also couldn't help but think of... uh... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when I'm reading this text. And I don't necessarily think it's because of um, the the sermon or the speech that you were referencing, but this idea that I mentioned a little bit before that if we just full on idolize someone and situate Mm -hmm. them in the past, then Mm -hmm. we don't have to do the work today. And that he wasn't perfect. So therefore we can relate to him, right? If we Mm -hmm. make him into this perfect (laughs) person, then it's like, we're off the hook because we're not a saint and we don't, you know, we don't have to do it too, but no, he was a human, just like we're all humans. And he did the best that he could. I mean, you know, significant with what he could at the time. And we're called to do the same. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like we could take bits and pieces of all of those angles and spin out like a 12-part series on Deuteronomy 34. (laughs) There's some good stuff in here. 
Well, this has been so helpful and a lot of fun to talk to you, Denise. So thanks so much for being a part of the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, it was great to talk to you guys. Really fun. Remember, friends, you can catch more of our past episodes on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can interact with us on our Facebook page, so look us up there. Check out Denise's website if you're looking for more of her work or for contact info. If you have any friends who haven't heard about us, spread the word, spread the love, tell just one. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks again, as usual, to Blue Dot Sessions for some extra music behind the reading. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll catch you next time.